Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. Welcome. My name is Sarah Franco. I'm the CEO of JAFCO, which is the facility that you are in. And it's my pleasure to welcome all of you. It has been said that each of us will die two times. The first time is the moment that we take our last breath. The second time is the final time that someone mentions our name. With all of the love in this room and around the world for the entire Markel family, for Phil and Shelly, and of course for Ruth, who's here with us tonight, and the boys, and also for Danny of blessed memory, it's very likely that Danny's soul will live forever. Jack was honored to host tonight's program, Perspective on Trial Life, and to dedicate this program in loving memory of Dan Markell. I know that you share with me in joining and uh, sharing all of our love and condolences to Danny's mom, Ruth, whom you'll meet shortly, and is such an inspiration to all of us and my personal hero. Ruth connected with JAFCO because of our mission, which is to provide care, safety, and support to children and their families within the Jewish community and beyond who are impacted by child abuse, neglect, trauma, or developmental disabilities, giving every child a place to belong. This center that you are sitting in is the JAFCO Children's Ability Center. And right next door, even as we speak, we are providing support to families raising children with autism and other developmental disabilities. There are children in the building enjoying programs and making friends while their parents are enjoying a much needed break. That happens 24 7, 365, and it is also available to them overnight. It's the only center in the United States that provides this level of support for families with developmental disabilities. This event venue, known as Illuminate, is the only event venue in the country with a cause, and it provides employment to young adults with autism, and you may have met some of them outside if you bought a barica. And uh, they get paid, uh, same wage that anyone else would, and it's uh, also part of our mission. This event, this venue is event available for rent, for a wedding, or bar mitzvah, or a kitzeh, or a corporate event, and the rental fee is tax deductible because of our charitable mission. So if you're looking for a venue, there's nothing better than this. Our children's village, which is about three miles from here, provides a home environment and love to 50 children at one time who have been removed from their parents due to abuse or neglect. We also have foster and adoptive families and also provide clinical case management to families in crisis at all of our sites. Our Eagles Haven site in Parkland is a recovery center for the community who suffered the trauma of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting six years ago. One of our programs is supporting grandparents who are raising their grandchildren. 
And because of the Markell Act and Ruth's advocacy efforts, all of the proceeds from tonight's event and any donations that are made on a card at your, one of your tables will go to that program because that's something that's so important to Ruth. Thank you all so much for coming tonight. If you want to learn more about Jaco, you can go on our website. And the first Wednesday of every month, there is a community tour. I would like to welcome all of you. Some We have a couple here that came, flew in for this event from Utah. So I'd like for them to stand because they get the prize for the furthest. Even though it probably took the people from Miami longer to get here. But, um, so there's cards on your table and there's information about our charity. Uh, on your way out on the piano, and please feel free to do that and come back and see us again. And to begin the evening, it's my pleasure and honor to introduce the moderator of our program, Joel Waldman. Joel is an Emmy Award-winning broadcast journalist. For more than 25 years, Joel covered breaking news and investigative stories. Joel was a D.C.-based Fox News Network correspondent covering the complex world of national politics from Capitol Hill. He was an investigative reporter for Fox 5 in New York City and worked for TV stations in West Palm Beach, Miami, and Tucson. Joel began his career as one of the first producers hired by MSNBC. During the pandemic, Joel and his Holocaust survivor mom, Carmela, Started, who's here tonight. Where is Carmela? They right started a podcast together called Surviving the Survivor. What started off as a way to stay busy during the lockdown has now turned into so much more. Surviving the Survivor brings, a world world, brings world-renowned experts in law and crime to cover some of the biggest true crime cases. The podcast now has live daily shows and reaches more than 2.5 million people every month. Surviving the Survivor started covering true, true crime a little over a year ago with the Dan Markell story. It is our honor to have Joel here today to use his incredible skills to moderate our panel discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Joel Waldman. Thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, please, everyone give a round of uh, applause for Jathco. They're hosting this, and uh, the work that they do is really amazing. I mean, they foster uh, young children, and uh, it is the most important work that there is. I was, I got a master's degree, which is a long story, in education. I taught, and it was the hardest job I ever had until Carm, who's sitting in the front row somewhere, right there, that I can never do it because it's way too hard. So I went into news, uh, which is slightly dysfunctional, but we'll get to that. So big shout out to, by the way, Sarah Franco has been the one and only executive director here the entire 31 years. So that is amazing. Also, Shelly Gold helped put this together. I don't know if she's here or where she is. A round of applause for her as well as Michael Moran. Michael Moran is here. I don't know if you want to say it, but I will. Uh, he was the executive chef for the Queen of Jordan. And uh, last but not le least, behind you in that pink striped sweater, sweatshirt, Rob Lentoski. Uh, he is videotaping this, and this is going to eventually go on STS. 
and he's doing it out of the kindness of his heart. So great people here. Um, I want to quickly thank my beloved mother in the front row, Carm, without whom I would not be here for many reasons. And um, so thank you to her. Uh, she was generous enough to sit down with me and uh, do a series of recordings over a long period of time. And that has now turned into a book called Surviving the Survivor. Uh, my father was my hero. He uh, died this past March. He wrote a book when I was like four years old that about three people read and two of them did not understand it. And uh, I said to myself, I'm going to write a book that everybody understands. It's in the same vein as Tuesdays with Maury. It is my mother's take on life. And uh, the great Mitch Album, who wrote Tuesdays with Maury, uh, gave us an endorsement for the book. And pre-sales will be out, so I'd love for you guys uh, to read that book because it is my mom's story. My beautiful wife is in the back filming this because she always has to work. I will not let her stop. Uh, Steve Cohen, stand up. Steve Cohen, otherwise known as Steve Cohen, he's the brains behind the operation. And uh, Space Coast, out on the West Coast, uh, he handles all our tech stuff. And the mods, they do an amazing job. So how did we get into this? Um, again, I was just kind of bored during the pandemic. I, I had started the business. I left Fox News, did not know what to do with myself. And I said, wow, let me bug my mother. And uh, one day a week, we went to a studio. She said it was like getting out of the nursing home. You know, she lives in a nice condo in Miami Beach. And we talked about nonsense. And someone said to us, I think it was Steve Cohen, no one's ever going to listen to this. He, he said, you guys think you're a lot funnier than you are. Um, and so he said, look, um, I heard about this case, the Dan Markell murder, and he told me about it. And I said, this is odd. Uh, this is a really tragic story. This guy was a brilliant mind. He went to Harvard undergrad. He went to Harvard Law School. And on the flip side, you've got this overbearing Jewish mother, Donna Adelson. You've got this neurotic son, Charlie Adelson, that can't stop calling his mother. And I call my mom about 73 times a day. So I said, who would ever do that? And I realized it was me. And I got um, really invested in the story. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. We cover a lot of other stuff. But I would not be here. We would not have our success. If it wasn't for these people. Dennis is a guest on our show. Ruth, obviously, is a backbone of our show. Dave Arenberg is one of the most... Uh, media savvy guys you'll ever meet and he is the uh, state attorney as you all know uh for palm beach county here in florida uh, he is ubiquitous he's going to be on morning joe tomorrow he's always on the tv and uh, he's the reason and ruth that people come and watch our show so without further ado i'm going to introduce ruth ruth is the author of the very popular book now about her son's murder dan it is called the unveiling a Mother's Reflection on Murder, Grief, and Trial Life. Prior to writing The Unveiling, Ruth was already a noted author, a public speaker, and a president of RNM Enterprises, a leading management consulting firm. I love this. She always says, don't get lost in the loss. It is a phrase that she has coined. Before we get to Ruth, we're going to play a quick video. Uh, most of the people in here know uh, the story about Dan Markell, but the COE was kind enough work on this and put it together and uh, we will play this for you i hope and then ruth will give her remarks thank you nearly a decade ago a loving father of two young boys and a rising florida state university legal scholar was shot outside his tallahassee home while sitting in his car that man was dan markell he died less than 24 hours later in the hospital 
the Harvard Law School educated professor's life was cut short before ever even entering his prime. Danny, his family and friends knew him, had finalized his divorce from ex-wife Wendy Adelson in 2013, but they were still in a bitter dispute over finances, personal property, and allegations from Dan that his former mother-in-law, Donna Adelson, was disparaging Dan during her visits with grandchildren, Ben and Lincoln. Tallahassee police interviewed Wendy, who told them about the divorce issues, but denied that she was involved in the shooting. As investigators searched for clues, they interviewed Wendy Adelson's former boyfriend, Jeffrey Lacasse, who told them they should look into Wendy Adelson's brother, Charlie. Wendy also flagged Charlie to the police. Fast forward to 2023. We now know this was a murder for hire. The trigger man, Sigfredo Garcia, along with Latin King gang member Luis Rivera, were convicted of the heinous murder. So was Katie McBanawa. She's the link between the Miami hitmen and the Adelson family. Charlie Adelson was eventually arrested and went on trial just this past fall. More than nine years after the murder, first-degree murder, it took the jury only three hours to reach a guilty verdict against Charlie Adelson, who was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Exactly one week after his conviction, to almost everyone's surprise, while trying to flee the country, matriarch Donna Adelson was also arrested. She was on the jetway at Miami International Airport boarding a flight to Dubai. Final destination was Vietnam. Donna was formally arraigned in December and now sits in a Tallahassee jail. Ironically, the same place she so desperately wanted her grandchildren to leave and the reason most believe was the motive for Dan's cruel murder. Please welcome Ruth Markell, Dan Markell's mother. Please give her a big round of applause. Thank you so much. First of all, I really have to compliment Joel, Deliana, Steve Cone. I have never seen anything on our case with such brevity and so effective. So, so the creative part of you is really very, very special. And thank you. And then, of course, there's Jaffco and Sarah Franco. So we go back a little while, and it is very heartwarming for me to be speaking tonight at Jaffco, and of course, in honor of Sarah Franco, who's done so much uh, for our family. While it's heartwarming uh, for us, it's heartbreaking with what's going on in the world and all of the loss of different family members. So I'm always very sensitive. I have these antennae that sort of says, hey, there's a lot of loss going on. So I want to share with you, I was a grieving mother in 2014. Uh, Dan was shot and on, uh, Ju on July 18th, and he died July 19th. He became known as the slain professor in Florida, and I became known as the mother of the slain professor in Florida. And we waited. We waited for two years after it was known that it's going to be the murder was not random. It was a murder for hire but we didn't know who it was yet. But then suddenly, in 2016, there was a big break in the case. 
a man called Zegredo Garcia, the shooter. I know a lot of you know the case better than me, but I wanted to give, give you a synopsis. I'm sure more people listen to more of the calls than, than I have even started to hear. So I do want to just give a synopsis of how my relationship starts with Jasper. So at the time, as Alfredo Garcia is arrested, Luis Rivera, the actual driver, he was also arrested, and Rivera plea bargain, and he brought in a woman called Catherine McBanua. Now, Catherine McBanua and Garcia, this is better than take the place, some of you know that from, from that period. Uh, so uh, Garcia and Catherine McBanua had a common-law relationship, and they had two children together. But their relationship was really up and down. And in one of the downtimes, Catherine McDonald dated Charlie Adelson. So this brings us into uh, the liaison and the opportunity uh, for the family to hire uh, these hitmen. So at that time, after the arrest happened, there was so much silence before then, I got nervous. And I began to fear that my two grandchildren, Benjamin and Lincoln, could be involved because of the fact that the family was taking them, you now this is the adult family, uh, to school and to different places. So I made an, an inquiry into Jasco's services. Some of you uh, know that part of the story. And that was the point at which Wendy Adelson cut us off for six years. So tonight, I'm really pleased that all of the interest here this evening is going to the Grandparent Initiative. And included in that, really, in the Grandparent Initiative, it started my journey of kind of moving from grief to advocacy, which I'll tell you about a little bit later. I do want to tell you, the book we'll, we'll talk about in a minute has a lot to do with grief. But I also want to tell you that I do believe in post-traumatic change, post-traumatic growth, and positive well-being. So in this tragedy, in this terrible tragedy, there are some positive potential outcomes. So I'll continue along. I developed this beautiful relationship with Sarah. And every time there's a trial, Sarah keeps on texting me and telling me, OK, you need to do meditation. Are you taking care of yourself? And she's like this guardian who reminds me that self-care is really an important part of all the stress related. So I am indebted to Sarah. I also spoke last year here, well, not in this building, the other building, uh, for some of the therapists who work uh, with some of the families in the other programs of JACO, as well as some of the therapists who work uh, with the as surviving families of, um, and, and I should say surviving, and some of the families who've lost a child in the Parkland uh, situation. So that's my history, and I want to talk tonight on a different perspective. So as you all know, Hanukkah just happened, the holidays are coming up, Christmas, New Year's, and so forth, and everybody's in a celebratory mood. Should be, I hope so, although they say holidays are not always celebratory. But my talk today is actually a tragic story, and it's a survival story. So in the group here tonight, we have Dennis Murphy from Dateline, who's talking about the media, 
Dave Arenberg, who definitely knows law, law, all the regulations, and certainly how the structures work. And he's going to enlighten us about some of the issues uh, in the case. And, I, and the word that I've learned over the years, I don't know if going to talk about this today, but it's evidence. Everything is evidence in, 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 in the uh, trial life. So not sure if that's coming in, but it is an important, certainly, part. So let me talk to you now about the victim's perspective. Canada has, oh, we're Canadian, I have to tell you, we're all Canadian, just tell you that. Canada actually has the best description of the victim. And the victim, in a big document that Canada has on their resources for victim, the victim is called the orphan of the criminal system. And I want to talk to you tonight and explain to you why the victim is the orphan of the criminal system. It's a very powerful statement, but how many of you, how many of you watch things like Law and Order and some of these other programs, and you see at the very beginning, the police, the law enforcement can be FBI, they're meeting with the family, and then they're explaining to the family the circumstances. It could be a death, it could also be a murder, and whatever have you. And then you see the family in the court but you never see what is happening to the victim through the whole experience of going through the trial life. The victim becomes invisible. And our story, as many of you know, you can't write it. You cannot do this in fiction, right? So there's so much glitz and glamour and, and so much positive media and so many intricacies in the story and the relationships that we are not the game. We are not in it. And that's one of the reasons, I'll talk soon about why I wrote the book, and what the purpose of really talking about the trial life and the victim experience. So our case, there's already been three trials, four convictions, and one new arrest. That's a lot. That's really a lot for a family uh, to go through. And I describe really our life behind the public is, it's, I use, it's interesting, I've chosen, I don't know why, I do not dateline 2020, I choose these playground terms. So it's either we're on a seesaw, we're either on a roller coaster, or it's a yo-yo, okay? So it's always an up and down situation. Even just, you know, the last few weeks is, is really uh, quite, quite chaotic. So basically and fundamentally, we're either in uncertainty or waiting, and it's a burden. So this is one of the things that I'm going to talk in a minute more about how that becomes a different kind of burden. Now, we're not the main show. And many of you, thank you, there's been a beautiful community out in Florida who've helped us uh, even know more about our grandkids. So Benjamin and Lincoln are two boys who lost their father when they were very, very young. Okay, so they're, they're born in 2010 and 2009. Dan died in 2014. It's little babies. They've lost a father. They've had their names changed. And both boys, who are bar mitzvah age, last year was Benjamin, this year is Lincoln, have had to adjust their bar according to what's happening in the trial experience. 
because there's always something, but it's a sad situation. And I think those are the, they are, they, we call them more homicide survivors, but it's a very, very important part to really talk about the children. And there's a lot of children in this case who are affected. There's Garcia's children, there's, there's other children who um, have also been affected. Catherine McDonough has, her brother has children who's also been involved. And of course, my daughter in Montreal, uh, sorry, Toronto, has children as well. So the, there's a lot of children who face some of this turmoil. So at the same time that it is a burden, I have to say that we are really very fortunate. So we have to show gratitude. We're grateful to law enforcement. We're grateful to all this community from all the podcasts. Of course, STS is really uh, heightening the show now, but there's everybody around. And I think it's important to remember. And there's the big people like Dateline in 2020 on the One Degree podcast. I mean, you can ask for anything more. And there stands a claim in the initial stages. It didn't just happen as this sort of colorful case emerged, but there was really a lot, a lot of support uh, from day one. So having talked about the burden and the gratitude, I wanted to expose the trial light. So I wrote a book called The Unveiling, a mother's reflection on grief, murder, and trial light. And the reason I wrote the book is to start to give a voice to grief. Now I'm gonna to explain to you the title. So the title of the book is called The Unveiling. And the unveiling is a Jewish ceremony. It's a Jewish gathering. It doesn't have to be formal. It's a Jewish get together after the burial takes place between 30 days and 11 months. So there's different traditions and unveiling happens. But the significance of the title was up until that point of the unveiling, which ours was nine months later, I was in a daze before, I had an out-of-body experience and I was stuck. But it was only when I saw the tombstones covering the grave site that the finality of the experience, not that I thought that Dan is you know, coming out of, out of the earth, but that really was my deep, deep journey into grief. It really changed everything. And so I wrote the book choosing that title because I want to give a voice to grief. And as you know, there's been tremendous amounts of mass shootings, school shootings, COVID, there's so much loss now in the world all over again, all new new families that are suffering. There's a lot of suffering. And it was a very important uh, opportunity for me to write and talk about grief. And of course, Anderson Cooper, I don't know if many of you know, he has a podcast on grief now. So that's another thing, just the whole idea to give this voice. Second voice. And so that's the first reason, <coughs> the title. The second is more important. In the time when you set up the tombstone on the burial site, we have a piece of fabric that covers the inscription that so it describes the person's life and so forth, 
that fabric doesn't get lifted until you have this ceremony, this prayer. Every family does it different. But for the second reason of why I chose the title is for the audiences all over, which is to lift the curtain, lift the veil on trial life, and explain to the public what does it mean to be a victim in a criminal case such as ours. So this is the critical part of the title of the book. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about the actual specifics of the victim experience. It's not the only part of the book. There's pieces in here for tonight's topic that I really want to highlight that we don't share enough or talk about. When there's a murder, so this is really important, we and many of Dan's friends are homicide survivors. A homicide survivor is a very unique experience. It's the psychological impact from a sudden violent death. So you need the suddenness, you need the violence, and you need the death. And that whole experience makes the situation and recovery of the family members or friends. Now, the homicide survivor is not the victims in the court in the actual justice system. It's broad-based. So Dan had certain friends who had nightmares after the experience, and other people as well who had, even one person had, unfortunately, a, a full clinical depression. So what the characteristics of the impact of the sudden violent death is, can be, doesn't have to be, it's numbness. I had numbness. Now, Phil, if some of you heard the other day, I don't know if you did, in the sentencing of Charlie Adelson, so Phil, that's Dan's dad, he talked about his sleep disturbances. So that's another one. Okay, so this is not a unique, it's not specific to normal loss. It's very characteristic of different symptoms affecting the impact because of the violence. Okay, so this is really an important distinction, and that's one of the reasons I'm starting to talk a lot uh, about the victim, the victim experience. It is also very specific to each person, and it's also, if you're in the court system, it, during the trials, there's the autopsies that you have to see. I never stay in, I can share that with you. I can't, I don't, I leave the court uh, during the autopsies and the medical examiners you know, kind of visual. I don't want a visual of my own uh, intense loss. So that's how I handle that part. So this is the psychological impact. It's a, it's a critical part, and it's distinctive from other kinds of loss. In addition now, and more specifically, a little bit to what we're talking about tonight, is the victim. And the victim is a legal relationship with the court system, with the justice system. There's something called Marcy's Law. Marcy's Law was passed in Florida in 2019. It gave some extra opportunities for the victim to engage with the prosecutors and other law enforcement. And it is helpful because 
they are now, I would say, more required to communicate with you uh, at certain points in the whole experience of becoming a victim. But the victim experience is, you've seen, victim impact statements. There's some victim rights, but it's a legal framework. A lot of people who are not the family members not necessarily fit the victim uh, sort of requirements, let's call it, just make it a little simpler. But what I want to talk more about, bring attention to, and this is really important for lawyers, there must be a few lawyers in here, and therapists. It's not important to see these two concepts as separate. Okay, and I'm explaining to you what it is. Anybody who's working with a victim from the court system has to understand where they are in the psychological process. So the homicide survivor needs to be integrated into the victim experience. Let me give you a couple examples. So the first one, when Catherine McDanawa had her mistrial, how many of you know that part, the first, the first mistrial in 2019? We, we prepare, some of you have seen this, after the trials and after the convictions, we prepare these family statements. And so what happened was we weren't prepared. We were literally not prepared. So Garcia had a conviction. We were pleased about the fact that somebody got, uh, we had some justice. But Catherine's mistrial, we didn't have it together for it. And we had to write this statement. And it's a very good thing. So my son-in-law, Ian's father's here tonight, and I'm not saying because his father's here, we fell apart. Between Phil Shelley and myself, who normally work together, we couldn't do it. And then Ian was there and he said, hey, listen, there's a deadline. You know, the media's out in the hallway. All our nice friends, the media are waiting. Anyway, we had a lot of trouble getting it together. So I'm showing you here an example of how the justice result affected us psychologically. And here, unfortunately, in Parkland, I was here last year, where the families expected the death penalty of Nicholas, of Nicholas Cruz, and it didn't happen. So all of the rehabilitative work that was done, really, the families had difficulty because they weren't ready for such a different outcome than what they expected. So what I'm trying to really get across now, it's a unique way of looking at this, which is to understand the victim, you have to understand where they are psychologically. And that means for the lawyers, they have to have sensitivity to compassion. They have to have an ability, maybe to explain the terms three and four times, to the, to the families, and at the same time, anybody who's working in rehabilitative mode with the families have to understand where they are in the criminal system. So I just talked to you about survivors from a homicide, but I also learned something this last year, maybe it's two years already. I was honored, I guess it's two years, to win an award uh, two years ago. And I met this young black woman in Tallahassee who did not get murdered, but she survived. She survived a shooting. 
And I want to read you her words because she's a victim too. So the person who lives and survives is also somebody who we have to really listen to. So I'm going to share with you a little bit of reading of she, she described her experience and it, it's unbelievably effective. So trauma affects everybody differently. Nobody could prepare me for how much being a victim would change my life or how it changed me as a person. Doctors can tell you how to care for your wounds after you're released from the hospital. But nobody told me that just being outside of the house would cause me anxiety. I didn't know that being around too many people would make me want to run in the other direction. Nobody warned me that I would have flashbacks, this is common to us too, flashbacks, nightmares, and day terrors. Nobody told me that living with PTSD would make life so difficult. And nobody told me that some days I would be so angry that I could, that I could feel too afraid to leave the house. And nobody warned me that you're constantly looking over your shoulders, worrying, wondering if it would happen again. And in her situation, they did find the shooter. She was delivering food as a volunteer. She was in the wrong place, wrong time, and got shot. And the experience here is to remind us, why I'm bringing this up, is not everybody is a surviving from a homicide, but they're surviving from other traumas um, related to victims. She was afraid of being um, caught on the street by the same person, just randomly. We see the offenders in court. That's an experience, that's a terrible, different kind of experience uh, than some of the other things uh, that I just explained. So now I wanted to share with you, and I talked before, there are potentials for some positive outcomes. We did, we were deprived of seeing the children, but with a large community uh, coming out of Tallahassee and my lawyer in New York put it in my head that I had to write a bill. I sat on it for three years, and then I was in Tallahassee, and after Garcia's trial, and a young woman, her name is Catherine, a lot of her friends are here, Catherine um, Halpern Cyphers. She came over to me in the hairdress. It's a funny story. And she says, Ruth, can I give you a hug? I see she's around Danny's age, but I really don't know her. And I said, sure. So she says, let's go for coffee after we finish the hairdresser. It's good to be in the hairdresser. Maybe it's better than the bar. Who knows? And, and she says uh, to me at that moment, outside, she says, what can I do for you? And I said, grandparent alienation. I have to tell you, I sat on it for three years. And I didn't ever mention it because it was in my head in the back. And she says, done. And she had the contact. She created this whole community with lobbyists and others. And really, we had a very successful outcome. Uh, the Markell Act, the grandparent bill, was signed by DeSantis in 2022. So I'm just going to leave you with a positive expression. We're gonna show the video now of the grandparent uh, bill. And I just wanna say Danny's words are, keep the fire burning. So don't give up and keep the fire burning.
Imagine this terrible scenario. Your only son is murdered, leaving his two young children, your grandchildren, fatherless. Then, the children's mother, your son's ex-wife, cuts you out of their lives. This leaves you without the only remaining connection to your son, and it leaves your grandchildren without any connection to their father's parents, siblings, aunts, uncles, or cousins. Worse, it leaves your grandchildren without the love and support you always offered, even more important now in this time of grief. Years pass while investigators work to find your son's murderer. Tragically, law enforcement then announced to the public their theory. They have evidence that the ex-wife's family hired hitmen to kill your son so that his ex-wife could have full custody of his children, your grandchildren. There's a lot of evidence, and one of the hitmen even confesses and testifies to his role in the crime and tells investigators who hired them. While there's hope that all of your son's killers will be brought to justice, the legal system moves very slowly. Four years pass. Your grandchildren are getting older. So are you. Despite many efforts for outreach, your grandchildren's mother doesn't budge. You still cannot talk with your grandchildren or see them. Meanwhile, they continue to be raised by other family members who law enforcement claim are responsible for the murder of their father. What can you do? You think, I want a petition of courts for visitation. But your grandchildren live in Florida. Florida law won't allow you to petition the courts. So you can't do that. Our next bill is HP 1119 by Representative Toledo, Grandparent Visitation Rights to Recognize Your Good morning. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, members. Before you today is House Bill 1119 dealing with grandparents' visitation rights. Under current Florida law, grandparents can only petition courts for visitation with grandchildren in extremely limited circumstances. The bill will create a point of access for, to courts for grandparents in cases where their child was killed and courts have ruled against a surviving parent in a wrongful death claim. However, this bill remains protective of the rights of Florida parents without changing the many factors courts consider in determining visitation. That is the bill. President does one step forward. This bill creates an opportunity for children who have lost so much already and due to the wrongdoing of a surviving parent to receive support and affection of the family members who love and miss them dearly, like the Markel family. And I ask for your support. ACA zero days, Mr. Chairman. Members, I vote that bill. Congratulations. Thank you. Our next bill members is. So I just want to say there there is something called positive well-being, and moving from grief, you can move to advocacy or other kinds of initiatives. So now our next speaker is David Aaron. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you, Ruth. Um, I can see where Danny gets his integrity and his intelligence and his professorial ability from. You're awesome. Ruth Martel, thank you. I'm the state attorney in Palm Beach County, which is the county to the north of us, folks from Utah. And uh, as state attorney, there are 20 of us in the state. And the state attorney in this case, Tallahassee, is a friend of mine named Jack Campbell. He's about the same age. And he represents a community that's different than the 
busy city down here that we all live in. The, his area is a lot more rural. Jack is someone who you know often is seen with a, a bulge in his cheek from chewing tobacco, and he likes to hunt and fish. And he tells me that he's really learned a lot about the Jewish community and what he's learned in this case, you know. And and uh, he just is uh, amazed and just with your strength, Ruth, and the family of Danny. But, you know, he was shocked when he saw that the family of the Adelson family were sending uh, Danny pictures of, or at least threatening to send pictures of their kids getting baptized or in front of a church or potentially wearing Nazi uniforms. That was the threat that was made by Don Adelson telling Wendy, this is how you will convince Danny to give up and to leave Tallahassee with the kids or at least let the kids live in South Florida. And for Jack, it was really unique. It's like, well, I, I don't even understand what's going on here. And Jack and I have a good relationship but, you know, I would tell him, hey, I do all this media stuff, but the most important case, the one that the world cares most about is yours in Tallahassee. So tell me, are you going to prosecute Wendy? <laughs> and his reaction was silence and stare me in the face. And his eyes would say, hey, this is what his eyes said. All right, you and I are friends, but there's some things I cannot say. So don't put me in this position. Got it? So that's essentially what I read in his, in his silence. But all I know is this. He is following the facts and the evidence. And if you wonder why everyone wasn't prosecuted at once, it was actually very smart because one person leads to another. See, this case to me is, is, is extra important. I'm obsessed with this case. First as a prosecutor, but also as a friend of Danny Markell's. I knew Danny. I was friends with him because I was a state senator for eight years, and I would be in Tallahassee, and we were both part of the Harvard Club up there, both part of the Jewish community up there, and so he and I were friends. And you know, his his murder was was extra uh, crushing for those of us who knew him. And you know, this case is important because I want justice to be done like you. But I know as a prosecutor that we are different than police. Police will make an arrest based on. Probable cause. Prosecutors file charges when we believe we can get a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's why when this case started, do you remember the police in Tallahassee wanted to charge the Adelson family? They had probable cause written out for them. And it was the state attorney at the time, Willie Meggs, who preceded Jack Campbell, who said, no, 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 we don't have it. You may have probable cause. You don't have a good faith belief that we can get a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. So what has happened is prosecutors sometimes have to make a deal with the devil. They didn't have much until they cut the deal with Rivera. Rivera was the key to this case. And he got only an extra seven, seven and a half years on top of a sentence he was already serving for another crime. But remember, Rivera was not the one who shot Danny Markell. He was the guy who was driving up in the car, and he was a principal to murder, and he was facing life in prison. But if you're going to cut a deal with someone, that's who you cut the deal with, not the actual trigger man. And because of his testimony, prosecutors were able to convict Sigredo Garcia of first-degree murder, and he's in jail for life. And then, because they got Garcia... Then they were able to go after Katie McBandua. And although, Ruth, you said there were three trials, there were four. As you correctly noted, Katie McBandua, for whatever reason, refused to take the deal that has been reported 
which would have let her go free. I, I, that was, now, that's the only surprise in this case, that she was reportedly given a deal where she could go free. And she, for whatever reason, only she knows, turned it down. She turned it down. And she thought, because, look, Charlie, I'm sure, was saying, they're not going to get us. Charlie's the smartest one in, any, in, in every room. If you doubt that, just ask him. You know, he would tell you that, right? Charlie knows everything. And so it rubbed off on Katie. And Katie turned down the sweetheart deal. And so she went to trial, and it worked. She was not found guilty in the first trial. She wore the, uh, the Menendez brothers' sweater and the big glasses. And at least one juror, I think it was one juror, felt sympathy for her. She had kids. And so one juror held out, and it was a hung jury. So then they had to try her twice. And look, Jack Campbell is a great guy and a great prosecutor, but he has uh, Georgia Kappelman, who was someone else I know, on the case. And she is amazing. She's the one that's doing all the, the, the prosecutions here. And they got her. They got Katie. And when they got Katie, everything changed. Charlie changed immediately. Charlie then went crazy. All of a sudden, his world started crashing down. Maybe he wasn't the maestro he thought he was. And so he started going crazy. He got a gun. He was worried what was going on here, that they could find him next. And so pretty soon, though, the bell tolled for him because the Delta Vita tape. Uh, you know, I, 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 we're already running late, but can I, can I just say some what Jack did tell me? One thing he did tell me was this. They had this Dolce Vita tape, which they needed to get Charlie. They didn't have enough evidence beyond a reasonable doubt where they could charge Charlie. But they had this tape where after the bump, and you know what the bump was, he and Katie did this, uh, they had a meeting at Dolce Vita restaurant in Broward, and a small restaurant was an investigator right there recording it. And they got the recording and they got it. Except when they tried to listen to the recording, it was muffled. It wasn't very good. The recording was not good. So I said, Jack, how did you fix that recording? How did you get the crucial evidence against Charlie? What did you do? He said, there is one expert in the whole country. In the whole country, there's one guy. He's in Virginia, and he specializes in this. And he costs a lot of money. I said, well, how did you in your small office pay for it? He said, I found the money. I got federal grants. I got our grants. We paid him this huge fee. And he shows up at the restaurant. And he goes and he listens to the tape and then he like goes around the restaurant and he like starts like like doing the echo tests and he starts walking around. And he found a way to like based on what's in the restaurant to alter the uh, the background noise and to focus in on where the noise was coming from. I, it's above my pay grade. I went to law school. I'm not an engineer, not a doctor, although my mom wanted me to be. And so he fixed this tape and the tape and you could hear it. And that tape was so incriminating. I got Charlie. And Charlie still, to the day of his verdict, thought he was going to get away with it. After all, he had an answer for everything at his trial, right? He had an answer for everything. Why was the money stapled together in the presence of the hitman? Because that's your thing, to staple the money. Why? Well, I was the one extorted, right? I had to pay them. That's why I gave the hitman money on a payment plan, okay? Because I was worried that the hitmen were going to hurt my family. He said, if I didn't pay up, I said, okay, but, but why would they kill Danny Markell? That's not how extortion works. Extortion is not when the hitmen go to your enemy, kill your enemy, and then come back to you and say, okay, we're going to kill you next unless you pay me. Normally, extortion means they go to you first. They say, pay me or else we're going to kill you and your family. So his story made no sense. 
but he said it in his cocksure way. But the jury was smart. They saw through it, and in three hours they convicted. And the best moment to me was not when the verdict was read, although that was amazing and so fulfilling. It was the moment. Did you see this? I know you all watched it. When, do you remember this? When they called the jury in after three hours. And that's when he knew. When that jury came back with their verdict within three hours, you see what they brought in Charlie? He looked like he had seen a ghost. He walked in. This, this arrogance was gone. He knew what was coming. And yeah, then the verdict came and he put his head in his hands. But that moment, that was the real Charlie Davison. You know, someone who's all show and no go. You know, someone who thought he was above the law but found out wow, that reality bites. And so here we are now. And then Donna is next. And here's how I'll finish it. I know we got Dennis Murphy, who's a national superstar. And I'm going to bring him up next. Yes. So, so the thing is this. If they had prosecuted everyone at the same time, they would have lost this case. You needed to go after uh, Garcia first to get to Katie, to Katie to get to Charlie, and then Charlie to get to Donna. If you had prosecuted Donna when you prosecuted Charlie, you wouldn't have had the incriminating jail calls that we have now. You wouldn't have had the key evidence of consciousness of guilt against Donna. Why do you buy a one-way ticket to Vietnam? Right? So you wouldn't have the evidence. And if you wonder why they haven't prosecuted Wendy yet, well, at the beginning of this case, I thought they weren't going to get Wendy. At the beginning, when I saw her at the police station and she didn't have a lawyer and she gave up her brother early on, I'm thinking, yeah, I, I believe her. But like the rest of us, after the evidence came out, I saw what really is going on here, and I have uh, my suspicions that justice is coming for her next. So that is my that is my talk. I want to thank you all for being here. Thank you for Jack Cohen. I'd love to bring up, if I can, from Dateline, national figure, the great Dennis Murphy. I'm also a Delray Beach guy, and this man is my state attorney. Thank you for day in and day out when the cameras aren't there, your staff, Georgia Capitol staff. You guys are the true heroes. Joe, when I was on your show the other night, uh, I was waxing philosophical, but your indulgence of got to pick up the same song. Ruth has asked me to talk about the perspective from the media. Uh, and when I think about homicides, as I've had to do a lot, unfortunately, in the last 10 years or so with the program, uh, I, I tend to see a, a serene lake out there. And then here comes a stone, and there's a big splash. That's the homicide. But that's not all that happens, because it, the ripples from that stone go out and out, capture more victims, the children, the grandparents, the, the everyone along the way, law enforcement. And when the ripples start to die down on the edge of the lake, there's the likes of me, the media. We're there with our tripods and long lenses and drones. We got extra batteries. We're in there for the long haul and we pack a lunch. So here you have, here's, here's Ruth coming from Canada, not only having to learn the American criminal court system, which is different by a lot, as you found out, Ruth. You know, she has to deal with, with us. The media, how are you going to handle it? And she's put into sometimes, I think, this kind of macabre red carpet situation. We're all out there shouting questions at the family. They're using that back door, go get them. I mean, 
it must have just been extraordinary. I hope we never showed up at your house with a bee truck and all that. So it's it, it's very difficult. And maybe the hardest thing to understand, let me be upfront about this, is we're not, the media are not here in the most part for justice for Danny. That's, that's Dave's job. That's George's job. We don't do that. Um, but... Uh, we're, we're going to be around, so you have to contend with us. And that, that, what we're really doing there is it's a great story. The Dan Markell murder case is a fascinating story. Here we are 10 years in, and it's still going. This is like an epic true crime Super Bowl. And now we're in double, triple overtime, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and I think of the, how we approach it, since we're not approaching it the way Georgia is or, uh, or Dave. Uh, I, I think of this as having two profound parts. It begins in this quiet little university town in northern Florida, and it's a Tallahassee CSI police procedural story. You have these extraordinary detectives analyzing cell fabric dumps and text messages and following videos, and, and, and it's just a, an incredible detective job, and it ends up, as, as we know, with the Three, three convicted perpetrators. But that's not the end of the story because the court of public opinion, as I think of all of us out here, one more satisfying ending than they It's not enough. I don't want, I, you're telling me this is a murder for hire. Who paid for it? Who did it? And that's where we end at the end of the Tallahassee CSI story. And now we're in the truly Shakespearean phase of it. This is the story of the Adelsons, the families. And I think you almost need to be a Shakespeare to talk about it. And it's, it's a totally different, it, it, it's going on, but what they tell us that the brother set up the murder of his, his, his wife's husband, his nephew's father, that, that there is an, a larger, as the prosecution presents it, a larger conspiracy of this family, all well-educated, uh, wealthy, that they would do this thing, and we just can't stop watching and listening to Joel's show. You know, there's just, it's, it's absolutely hypnotic. And it's not that we're not about justice for Danny, it's we're pursuing that story. And here we're going on to the, the next phase of this thing, and I can't wait to see what happens. I don't want to be around to be able to, to tell you about it. Um, and I was thinking, Ruth, about your, your thoughts about the, what happens to the victims. And sadly, Danny's story seems to be dropping further and further away. You know, we're talking about... We're talking about the killers. I, 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 Ruth, with your permission, I, I, I looked up your victim impact statement at the end of the Magbonova trial. And let me just read you some of her words. This is uh, Ruth to the court. My life was shattered. For me, closure and normalcy are only words in a dictionary, not a reality that I will ever experience again. So, Professor Daniel Markell was lost to all of us on that day, and the justice for Danny is a story for us to be continued, I hope to be reporting along the way. Ruth and Phil and Shelley have been so generous in our time, and I really hope we have not been badgering you, but I know there must have been times when dealing with the media has been a, has been a problem. Because when we get a story like this in our, in, our, in our bit, we just run with it, and we're going to stay on it. And I hope... Maybe by keeping it in the in the news in the forefront and Joel's 
tenacious reporting with a, with a podcast. Uh, maybe in the long run it helps. We're not just the vultures and the ghouls, uh, but we also become the journal of record of a profoundly grotesque experience. Boarding a plane to a non-extradition country, picked up on a checkway. Wouldn't we all like to have a cell phone video of that? Yeah. Uh, the FBI agent who's been on this family's case for approaching 10 years, Ruth, that he's wrestling with her for the iPhone. I want your phone. I've got a warrant. And she's not understanding what's going on. And all of a sudden, they're all leaving the airport, and Harvey, the husband, is there. And it's, it's, it's like you're going to get down for booking, and your life is over. And will somebody call Harvey an Uber? No? And I just... <laughs> So it just gets stranger and stranger. And you know, in Hollywood writers' room, you could get away with some of this stuff. It's all it's all real. And Ruth, you've had you've been splendid in, in dealing with all this. You know, and I, I I speak to here just as a stand-in for for mainstream media. And what a job Joel has done on this matter. <laughs> and people with microphones don't usually get that kind of acknowledgement. You are you are the man. So, uh, and, and I'm astonished, probably all of you out there can tell the story better than any of us. We get paid to tell the story, but you know the transcripts, you know, chapter and verse of what's, of what's happened. But uh, thank you, thank you for asking me to, uh, to join your, your, your panel tonight. Uh, we'll be around. We'll be here. Just want to say a couple of very quick things, and then we're going to slide the podium over, and I think we're going to take questions. Number one, uh, Dave Arenberg, they always call him the Florida State Attorney, but they really should always call him just a great guy. He really is. Comes on my uh, podcast all the time. One of the brightest guys. He's right up there with uh, Dan Markell. Dan maybe edged out by an inch or so. But this guy is a brilliant guy, but more, much more importantly, a very, very nice guy, one of the few politicians. Let's give him a round of applause. Dennis Murphy knows who I'm going to mention right now, Ty West. I was one of the first producers hired at MSNBC. And when I first met Ty West, who was back in 1995 or 96, already a senior producer at Dateline, I said to him, one day I'm going to be a Dateline correspondent. <laughs> and it never happened. But it happened for Dennis Murphy. And Dennis Murphy is the newsman that I always wanted to be. And I mean that sincerely. There are very few people... Uh, there are a lot of people, I won't mention any names, Bill O'Reilly, with big egos in the business who I've met, and I've gotten to know a lot of people. Um, but I've known Dennis not a long time, but he is full of humility, and, you know, if I could redo my career, I would want to be him. Uh, so I appreciate the kind work. And obviously, uh, I never thought I would say these words either, but uh, through this tragedy, uh, obviously horrific, but I gained a second Jewish mother, and I actually sort of love it. Uh, Ruth tells me what to do, when to do it, and how to do it, just like my mom. And I'm nervous right now because I don't know if we're doing a little uh, back and forth between the panelists, but I think we're taking questions. Ruth, are we taking questions? And uh, Ruth really is an absolute pillar of strength. Um, I tend to sometimes, every once in a while, see the glass half empty. My mother always half full, most positive, optimistic person. Ruth Markell right there uh, with my mom, always 
fight, what is going on? She is always seeing the glass half full. So without further ado, I'm going to uh, slide this out of the way. If I can do that, I might need a handyman. And if not, um, well, I will do that right now. And then we'll take some questions. Turn it on. Yeah. <laughs> I just called a handyman and said I need to drill two holes, and he looked at me like I was crazy. Yeah. Hi, good evening. Um, I've been a lawyer for 25 years, but I'm not, I haven't tried a case in about 15, so maybe you can answer this. Do you guys remember when Hillary Clinton was being accused about the email thing and she used something called bleach bits? What happens if these idiots were smart enough to get bleach bit and can you recover stuff after? Because they had a lot of money to throw at this. I don't know that they were smart enough to, but what do you say about what can be discovered and could they have used bleach bit? And what happens when you use bleach bit? What is we? There we go. Um, I got to tell you, I've been a prosecutor for you know, 12, 13 years now. I've, I've never heard of a bleach bit. I, I, I just, I just, I don't know what that is. But as, as far as deleting emails or things, they, you know, there's a digital footprint. That's the thing. Criminals are stupid. You see, especially nowadays, there's a digital footprint. Emails, text messages are forever. And they thought they were so smart. They were talking in code. How about the TV? <laughs> when you're talking in code, we, we're on to you. We know. Plus, they're sending really incriminating text messages back and forth. Like, they press, remember the one message where they said, uh, please delete this after you read this about your father's birthday gift. Oh, right. <laughs> so, no, I'm not worried at all that that they will be able to delete. If it's there, we're going to find it. Yeah, I just want to add to that very quickly. We just did a show on Surviving the Survivor about, all about digital forensics, and we had a guy that specialized and testified uh, in a couple of the trials up in Tallahassee. His name is John Sawicki. It's all about digital forensics, and the bottom line was that um, law enforcement's always sort of a half step behind Apple and the big technology companies, but they're at a point now, uh, even with WhatsApp, because that's come up a lot, that they're going to be able to get the information. And it's my belief, if uh, Donna is anything like my beautiful mother and Harvey, they're not the best with technology, and he just sees their stuff. So I think they're going to get some information. Can you be my Jewish mother too? <laughs> I just want to, the, the, this concept of bleach. Here's here's a little tip from the Dateline archives. I was talking with the chief medical examiner in Pennsylvania one day, and he said you don't use bleach in a crime scene. You use Windex. Remember my big fat Greek wedding? Windex will make DNA absolutely unreadable. So don't, don't try this at all. Hi. Before I ask the question, I want to say I think everyone maybe in this room has some kind of a connection to this case. I saw on the video and I read in the book, Jackie Toledo, who introduced the bill, was one of my sorority sisters. And it was such a beautiful surprise to see 
her name in the book and in the video. And we're all so touched. And, and I just hope you feel the support and love from everyone in South Florida the way that I hope it's going in Tallahassee. Um, but my question is, have you ever heard from Robert Adelson? Has he reached out to you? Does he support you? Is there any contact? Yes, first of all, thank you very much for talking about uh, Jackie Toledo, who was a sponsor. He has. Okay, so Rob Adelson, if some of you listen to the Wondery podcast over my dead body, so Rob has very much uh, been a part of uh, sort of participating, not too much publicly, but I do have to say he's been very helpful behind the scenes. Has he, has he reached out to you since these latest two developments, the conviction and Donovan? You know what, I think, I, I, I think that's personal to him, okay? But I do want to just say that he has been estranged from the family, and he's certainly welcome to, to reach out, and he does. That's his, 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 uh, his family participation. It's, along those lines, by the way, of the question, and thank you, that was an amazing question about Rob. I didn't even think about that. The laws, the, the legislation that passed that gives you rights to see your grandchildren, does it actually apply in your case? Because Wendy has not been no. charged or found liable for wrongful death. Okay, so I'll explain a little. Thank you. So the, the legislation is uh, uh, developed for anybody who had a spouse who died and the other living spouse can, can be charged civilly or criminally. So as you know, Wendy has not been charged uh, civilly or criminally, but that's always an option. And we've had, what's amazing is we've had, I've had so many people reach out to me with uh, personal murder situations and others. So I'm very happy to say that the legislation is being used. So that's a really positive outcome. I'm actually asking these questions to my wife, who probably knows the transcripts better than many of the lawyers. Uh, first, she believes that there really were three motives connected within the custody battle. Also, that Wendy felt Dan was going to expose her where she would be disbarred, and the Adelsons felt that Dan knew about their financial sh- shenanigans, insider trading, and other things that they were afraid he was going to reveal. And my second part is, Rauschbaum seems to be staying on this case in a way that, for many people, makes no sense. He had never tried a murder case, but he did handle their white-collar problems before this. And my wife believes they're sticking with him because they're afraid any other attorney might not care about their white-collar problems. I think that's a Dave Ehrenberger right there. Now, I, I don't know about all the different motives. I can tell you that Rajbaum, I thought, did a good job. I mean, look, you you, you got to deal with the crap that you're given. And, and he had a very weak hand, and they came up with a theory that explained the money being in the hands of the, of the killers, among other things, even though it was totally preposterous. Um, so I, I don't know. I generally, I, I think you, you choose the lawyer who's going to secure your freedom. I don't think that... Charlie chose Rochbaum because he was worried about his parents or his future white-collar liability or criminality. I think right now you're trying to save your hide, and Rochbaum is a successful attorney in South Florida. But here's the thing. 
What sells in South Florida doesn't sell in Tallahassee. And I can tell you because I lived in both places. If you live in Tallahassee, a lot of people don't look very highly on Miami. And especially the week, didn't notice the week that the, the verdict came out? It was the Miami FSU game. So heightened, tensions were heightened that week with hatred towards Miami. And you have a defendant who is asking a Tallahassee jury to find him not guilty. At the very least, they were trying to help the sister take the kids out of this so-called hellhole of Tallahassee where the jurors live. So I thought that when they lost their motion to move the case out of Tallahassee, that die was cast. Jurors who Charlie now has tapped phone calls, listened to phone calls, is calling inbreds. Inbreds, rednecks. After the conviction, yeah. Well, that's not going to go up for his mom on trial. <laughs> Um, so one of the jail phone calls, uh, Donna mentioned um, that Dan Rashbaum said that he, she may not make it out. Is, does that mean that he knew about their, their escape plan to Vietnam? And is he liable? Could he get in trouble for aiding and abetting? If, if he took an action to help them escape uh, arrest, at the time, though, there was not a warrant out for Donna's arrest. Where it comes into play, Donna's departure is in consciousness of guilt. They're going to use that against her in her trial. Why are you leaving with a one-way ticket if you did nothing wrong? But Rashbaum will not uh, be charged with anything unless there was an arrest or he knew that they were about to be arrested and he helped them, actively helped them leave the country. There's no evidence that he actually did. Uh, so uh, I don't think he would be charged with anything. How did the police get very lucky to be able to record the Dolce Vita tape in a restaurant where they could have been four tables away and not next door? It's a, it's a very small restaurant, and they had their eyes on Charlie and Katie, and after the bump, they were waiting to see what they were going to do. So when they went to the restaurant, there was a undercover uh, investigator there. Now, as far as being lucky to get the table next to them, that's just luck. Um, they were there, and the bag was on the table. In fact, Charlie even said, yeah, that guy looks like a cop, or he's got a bag on the table. I don't care. I'll say what I want to say. Yet, yet the tape didn't work, and they had to hire the one guy in the country who managed to suppress the alternative noise, all the extra noise and found was really on the tape. By the way, if I know Steve Cohen, he's already booked that one guy in the country for next week, right, Steve? <laughs> My, my favorite line in the tape that's in the clear from Dolce Vader, right at the top, if they had anything on us, we'd be at the airport now. <laughs> Do we need to keep listening to the tape? <laughs> that line was, in my view, the most important line of the entire recording. The first line. Right? A lot of rumor on rumor after that. Right. My question is, in the event of Wendy Edison's arrest, what happens to the children? <laughs> So it, first of all, thank you for the question. We're all worried about the children. In the event of her arrest, bad news for many people, she is allowed to make decisions about what happens to the children. So that is, we knew this before, and uh, Joel had a guest the other night, uh, Louis Batiste, who sort of read 
the part. So it's section 39 and so forth. So I think that that's the first reality. We don't know who she has or we don't know anything like that. It changes on conviction, but the reality is on arrest. I got kicked out of <laughs> because of my watch. Your phone? <laughs> there it is. So that's that's really the answer to that uh, to that point. I have a quick question for Dave, if I may. Dave. The more we're listening to these jailhouse calls and we listen, listen to a bunch more, Charlie is absolutely fixated on Wendy and he's, they, they, they have to know they're being recorded. I mean, these people are not complete idiots and it says it every time you call and they're literally, to me, seem to be setting her up right now. Do you think that they're going to flip on her? The only family member, I think, with a chance of flipping on another family member is Charlie flipping on Wendy. I don't see, and we know Jewish mother, she's not, Donna's not flipping on her kids. They're not flipping on her. They're, uh, maybe Donna flips on Harvey, but you know, can't get blood from a stone. That's not, I mean, they're just not going to get a great deal to flip on Harvey. But she could get out early if she flips on Wendy and she won't. But could Charlie flip on Wendy? Think about it like this. Wendy sold out Charlie within five minutes at the police station. And Charlie has expressed some frustration at Wendy. Um, he did so even at the trial because he's now in prison for the rest of his life because he was trying to do her a solid. So could he give her up to get out of prison before he leaves in a casket? Yeah, I think it's possible. In the back. I don't know, but I'm, I'm going from memory, but it seems to me that there was some sort of uh, deal cut with Wendy if she would testify. Now, uh, I don't know what happens with that. I guess this is for you, Dave Ironberg. Right. Yeah, it wasn't a deal, but it was immunity. She was given use immunity, uh, which means that whatever she said could not come back to honor. She cannot be used against her. But... Prosecutors and police can still independently investigate leads that are not from her own testimony. And they pretty much had everything already. So they didn't lose much by giving her use immunity. And the reason why they gave her use immunity is because she would not testify. Otherwise, she'd probably take the fifth and, and uh, we're trying to make it hard for them. They got her to testify on the stand and they gave her just use immunity, which is the most limited type of immunity. So it was fine for prosecutors. I don't think they lose anything by giving her that immunity for her testimony. Now she's testified twice now. Yeah. One other point just related to that, and Joel had other guests on this. So there's a whole thinking that she did commit perjury. And so she might not be involved on the uh, criminal side of the, the murder part, but there is a movement uh, that suggests that there is a fair amount of perjury. It is always possible to charge a witness with perjury, but it's rare. I think that if Wendy is charged, it's going to be for the murder. I don't see the only charge brought against Wendy being for perjury, just because it's it's very rare and it's hard to do. You know, the intent to lie, even though, like I, I know the internet sleuths have shown specific lies. I get it, but it's a rare charge because it's very hard to prove. Thank you. Um, Okay, and after that, I feel like we've got to hear from the couple from Utah, at least why you decided to come at the very least. But he's also an attorney, so I want to hear what you think of the case. 
Okay, so um, Katie and Sigfredo could have jointly flipped. Katie could have got out. Sigfredo could have got a better prison. And during her proffers, she's holding back. There's got to be another link or element to this. What do you, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? She said that she didn't want to sell out Sigfredo because he's the father of her children. That was a death penalty issue. So she did at the very beginning. She didn't want to squill on on Garcia because he was uh, charged with the death penalty. So that was her earlier uh, circumstance. But nobody nobody believes later on. She had another whole trial of why she didn't talk. So those are just you know a lot of there's a lot of questions still. During the proper though, she kept saying, "I need to talk to Sigredo." So there's, I think there's something more to it. How do you know what's in the proffer? In the proffer is that Metro lawyer had that came up. I, she I keeps saying I, in them, I need to talk to some friends. I'm not sure. I, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. Did she get the death penalty? She, she, uh, no, it's already over. In fact, I think she's going to get out. I got to say, I think she's... Okay. Oh, when? No, no, no. They would never know. I mean, they're not, just realistically, they're not, no. I think Katie, Katie, I, here, here, so let me tell you, so, wait, hold on here, so, Katie Finally, is, someone's getting mad at someone. Right. <laughs> Katie is sentenced to life in prison. She's going to be in prison a long time. But she testified, and she did truthfully at this last trial for Charlie. She did so without a deal in place. Prosecutors never promised her anything. But the reason why she did that was because her lawyer believes that they can get the prosecutors to agree to a release before she dies in prison. So I don't know when, but I do believe that Katie one day will get out because she testified truthfully in Charlie's trial after she lied in both of her trials. She's not a very good liar, too. You can see right through her. But horrible. But you can tell she was telling the truth this time, um, at least for the most part. She did. She did. She did lie a little bit. Uh, you know, she right. Oh, she did lie a little bit. She, she, she's a she's an awful individual. But I do believe because she testified truthfully at this trial that she will get at some point in her life to be reunited with her kids and maybe when her kids are already, you know, the grandparents themselves. But we'll see. I did hear when. I know you have a question. I'll just comment on Katie. There is a possibility that the benefit to Katie is that she can maybe be in a prison closer to her family. So I don't know if you agree with that, but that's one of the potential deals. If, if Ruth is right, it's possible. I just, I, I, I believe that uh, it will probably lead her at least one day. It could be 40 years in prison. But Ruth is also right. It could be a deal to have her closer uh, to her family. Couple from Utah. Couple from Utah. I've got to hear from a couple from Utah. Give them out a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, you know, my wife and I, you know, obviously we live in Utah. Uh, we have a very good friend. He's also a lawyer. And sometime in the summer, he kept telling me, you got to, you know, you got to pay attention to this case. You got to listen to this. And we kind of got sucked in. We love Joel. We, we absolutely love the show, Surviving the Survivor. It really does have the best guests. We have so much sympathy for Ruth and her family. Um, and yeah, we just, uh, we love it. And I was talking to her one night, and we're, I think we're listening to Joel's show, STS, and said, hey, honey, wouldn't this be fun? And, well, one thing led to another, and here we are, and we, uh, we're thrilled to be here. So, well, you're, you're definitely getting a special swag bag. Thank you. Thank you. If I could, uh, my lovely wife has a question for Dave. Um, 
Dave, if, if uh, Charlie does indeed flip on Wendy, like, what sort of benefit, if any, do you think that he could get? Same thing that Kenny could get. He could not die in prison, so he could get out at some point. Um, I think it's, it's an outside chance. I don't think it's likely, but I think there is a chance. Keep in mind, though, when you're dealing with people like Katie or Charlie, the value of their testimony is limited because they're liars. Charlie is a convicted principal to a murder, first-degree murder, and he lied through his teeth on the stand in a preposterous story about being extorted. So it's not like he has a huge value for prosecutors, but he can help. And if he comes clean, I think they would make it uh, not a specific deal. They'll say testify, and then we'll figure it out later. That's the deal that Katie got. She's hoping to be let out. She may not. Oh, you know where Katie really lied? Remember she said on the stand, look, I'm here because I want to do the right thing. I just want there to be justice for Dan Markell. <laughs> she, she had that chance over and over again. She's a liar. She wanted to get out of Saber on Hyde. That's all. I don't know if maybe a Something like that, yeah. She's narrow. <laughs> okay, uh, the boss will tell me one more. Let's take two more quick questions. There's so many hands. Yeah, and let's get Dennis in the mix here. Um, I can talk really loud. <laughs> um, Ruth, I had heard that, well, we know Dan's academic prowess and a big... Um, study for him was the death penalty. Did you as a family have influence in that, that there would be no death penalty trials? Well, if actually the answer is yes, but no also. The death penalty was used for Garcia because of the opportunity. This was the first person who was charged. And at the time, it was an opportunity to have some leverage. So we did agree to have the death penalty sort of on the piece of paper. Uh, we were very pleased that he did not get the death penalty. And there was a lot of internal conversations about whether he really should use it for leverage. But even in the sentencing, there's like a, there was a little wiggle room. And, uh, you know, with the victim impact statements, that would be very much a part of uh, sentencing for the death penalty I'm talking about. So the answer was we used it once uh, to uh, Georgia Aspa. She consulted it. They really preferred to have it on, on the, uh, the option of putting it out. So that's, that's the answer. We probably would find a way of not going forward on it. But it was an issue. We have another question here. Hi. My question is, is that feedback uh, for Ruth. Um, there have been a lot of comments um, the um, you know comment sections of all the podcasts. People want to know what the childhood was like of Donna Adelson. Do you have any insight? And I ask that because anyone coming from a toxic family or someone who has a, a parent that's a narcissist, you see there's this psychotic break from reality. They're in a psychosis or something. I don't even think that Charlie. I think Charlie did it for Donna. I'm sure everybody, there's plenty of people that think that. But they've lost, they lost track of reality. I just I wonder why Donna is such a toxic woman, why adults allow their parent, Donna, to rule their, to influence them so much. Do you have any insight? I have a lot of insight. Uh, we've had actually a couple of people who've come out of the woods uh, to tell us some previous background in the family. But I'm not going to answer the question the way you think I'm going to answer it. 
I was consulted at the very beginning uh, when, when Danny was murdered about what to talk to the children about. And my first degree, although I don't use it for 40 years, but it's in social work. And I said to the child, uh, it was a child psychiatry consultant, and I said, like very openly, I said, what do you think about the pathology here? And he says, no, Ruth, some families are evil. And this is an evil family. And, and, you know, and in the Jewish religion, you know, we don't necessarily be, believe in original sin or anything like that. But it actually really shows more and more and more. So that's the real answer to looking at it from a pathological point of view. Chills, yeah. It is chilling. We're, we're going to take one last question as the mic's getting handed out. I want to ask Dennis. Dennis, in your experience, why, and I think I asked you this on the show, why do people commit these crimes when you cover them constantly? Um, she just talked about a psychotic break. What do you think is really at the root? I, mean, are these, I think it's a rich cocktail of things that happen. Men, women, money, jealousy, infidelities. There's a lot of things that come into play. But I think it's a question you really can't answer in the whole criminal justice scheme of things. Why did you do it? What were you possibly thinking? You're trying to put rational thought to an irrational act. This is the final question, and uh, I think Ruth is going to be signing some books after this, so stay right. tuned. The party's not over yet. Yes, Sarah, Sarah's over there always, or she took them out of the box. Sarah's there organizing. Okay. Okay. Right. This last is the last question. question. Okay, Ruth. Firstly, it's an honor to be here with you, and I couldn't wait to, to come here. Uh, I just lost my husband 12 weeks ago from cancer, and... Uh, I swore to him before I died, come and see you. Wow. I did. And I have to do this because I knew your son in 2008. And I was let go in 2013 from the Adelsons. And I want to tell you that you're the most wonderful, loving, and your son also comes from just wonderful genetic genes and wonderful people. They are the best people I've ever had to hear about in my entire life. Not what the Adelsons have said about them all, their, all my six years that I was there. I kept my mouth shut. I listened. I journaled. And I tell myself, one day I'm going to meet that wonderful woman who brought up that wonderful, loving man who loved his two little children. I have a grandson birthday. He's four years old. I have a son. I felt I lost my son. I met your son. I worked on him. I'm a hygienist 50 years. And I really can say I loved your son. I saw your children. I saw your children in the office. Okay? I saw Benjamin. Lincoln wasn't born yet, but I sent them gifts. I did send them gifts. Still like family to me, even though I never met Robert. I sent them gifts too. The little Lila's now, Lila, Max, John Robert's, Robert's children. I sent them gifts too. Because I do the right thing, because not because I have to, it's because I wanted to. I wanted them to, to see another person in an office doing the right thing, not what the Adelsons did, did and talked about you constantly. Horrible things. I didn't believe one word they ever said. And in 2012, when Wendy 
was getting divorced, and I'll never forget this. I went to Don, I said, you didn't give me my paycheck. And she says, we're going through a divorce. I don't have time to give you a paycheck. And she looked at me, pointed to me and said, when I said, okay, I got it, I got it. I, I know, I know. She says, no, I got you. And now we got her. I'd love to give you a hug later, if that's okay. Wow, thank you, Ruth. Wow, what a, what a final comment, Ruth. Yes. Go ahead. Wow. You know, like, I'm always amazed, you know, sort of what opportunities, situations come. And I must say, I'm not a big sort of believer in divine intervention, but somebody said, I commented once about something related, and they said, well, look at it, it's in the cosmos. So my answer to you is, thank you very much. I'm sorry to hear about your husband. I also want to say that there's a very good thing, this is for others also, uh, David Kessler is one of the best specialists on grief. He has a program called Tender Hearts, and, and I'm just going to update the grief issue because I didn't talk about the grief tonight, I often do, uh, that for those of you who are experiencing any kind of personal loss, a spouse, uh, hopefully no children, a sister, a brother, whatever, that today's thinking on grief is very relieving because you're, I don't use the word you're entitled, but nobody looks at grief as pathological or complicated grief and two years. So if you're worried from day to day that you're not going to get over it, and this is for a lot of other people, you really should read his work. So I just want to say I hope you have and you know, an easy time and don't put don't be hard on yourself. But that was just beautiful what you just said. Thank you. So uh, as they say in uh, Dennis Murphy's world, that is a wrap. And uh, we are gonna have Ruth sign some books and uh, Dave, I know, has to run. I don't know about Dennis. I'll hang out for a little while with the COE and uh, love to meet everyone. So uh, thank you all for coming. And thank you to Jaco. Please support Jaco.
Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system, or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.